Hi, Warren. How are you? Good morning. Very well. Yourself? Good morning. Yeah, great. Thanks. Thanks Thank again you. for uh, joining us. Hope, uh, hope all is well. Yeah, all good. A little bit drizzly and, uh, and raining this morning in Southern California, but uh, we'll take it at the moment. We've had a bit of a heat wave, but yeah, all good. Might as well right. northeast. Might as well yeah, back in Newcastle. Yeah, it's, it's raining today, but uh, it's been nice and pleasant for the last uh, few days, yeah. so that's good. And obviously we had good news the other day with the Premier League back starting and uh, then maybe we can get this takeover sorted out as well. So yeah, lots of good things. Great, great. So, so thanks again for joining. Uh, for those that are watching, um, I'm joined today by Warren Barton, former Wimbledon, Newcastle and England uh, defender, stroke midfielder, I should say. Um, so thank you very much for joining us, Warren. I'm just going to dive in. First, I just want to check how's your family doing during this pandemic? Yeah, no, we're lucky where we live. You know, um, we're, we're not too far away from the beach. We've got a, a nice backyard where we can exercise all together. If anything, it's brought us closer together. You know, we've bought some bikes and gone on bike rides, uh, worked out together, watched movie nights, game nights, like everybody else, been getting takeouts. And yeah. slowly, slowly, it's been getting back to, to normal with you know, barbers being open and, and salons and restaurants. So it, it's been a, a really unusual time, uh, obviously, with my work with Fox. Uh, that had to be put off for for a number of months, uh, as well as the coaching that I do in Southern California. Um, and I, I think like everybody, you know, we've just been determined to see it through. Uh, the thing that's really been difficult, there's not been like an end. You know, it's not like, oh, in yeah. three months time, we'll all be OK. It seems to be dragging on. And, um, you know, for us personally, you know, it's not been too much of a, a hardship, to be honest with you. In Southern California, the weather's great. Uh, we're lucky to be outside. Uh, we're all fit and healthy. So that, that's the main thing. So. Uh, I think there's a light at the end of the tunnel now as well. Yeah, yeah, it seems that way. So that's good. Uh, so just just touching on your your coaching uh, since you retired, you know, to the US. To tell us a little bit about what you're doing uh, with your coaching. Yeah, I retired in in '05, '06. Uh, uh, you know, come to a level where people was getting quicker and faster, and I was getting slower <laughs> and, and couldn't turn as quick. So it was time for me to yeah. to hang my boots up. At, while I was doing that at the places like Newcastle and, and Derby, uh, I'd done my B licence, uh, A licence, and ultimately my pro licence. So coaching is something that I was always interested in, even when I was playing. Me and Stuart Pierce, when I was 28, 29, we did our B licence together and our A licence. So I've always had that in my mind to go into coaching. So in 08, uh, we decided as a family to bring my young uh, boys at the age of 10, 8 and 4 to San Diego, Southern California, and start a new life, uh, a new beginning, new chapter in our life. I'd had a great time in, in England and you know, proud of what I've achieved as a career, uh, from being told at 16, 18, you, you, you know, you're too small, you're not gonna make it, uh, to uh, planning cup finals, champion league, and, and playing for your country. So coaching is something that's always been there um, in the back of my mind. The media's been great with Fox. Um, I've had 12 great years with them, whether it's been doing the Premier League, Champions League, uh, in Los Angeles and the you know, MLS World Cup. So I've been very, very fortunate with that. But on the side, I've been coaching my kids. Um, and that was one thing that I wanted to try and do, spend more time with the family. Uh, when I originally first come to the States in 08, I worked with LA Galaxy when it first started the DA. Um, and it's very, very unusual to what I'd experienced. It was more like a club team uh, going into just mm -hmm. normal tournaments. So it's a really alien to what I'd been involved with. But it gave me a great understanding of the culture and where soccer was uh, in the US um, and give me a great foundation. But then ultimately I went into club soccer. 
I coached my oldest son, Milo, uh, my middle son, Kane, who's, who's 19 now, and my youngest one I still coach, who's 15 years of age, uh, for a club called Delmar Sharks, which is actually Shannon McMillan is the uh, director of coaching there who won a World Cup back in 99. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to work with her. Um, coaching's in my blood. I love it. I was lucky enough to be with Brad Frieda with the U18s uh, a few years ago and really enjoyed that. Um, and as the media is changing with Fox and and how people now view games. It's not where you have a panel anymore. It's just taking the games and then moving on to the next program. Um, coaching is something that's in the back of my mind, you know, and whether it's at the level that I am now or look to go higher, USL, MLS. Um, but yeah, we, we just have to wait and see. But yeah, it's something that I feel that I've got a lot to offer, a lot to give back. Uh, but I love coaching. I love being around, you know, m making players better make them enjoy the game. Because um, uh, as I said, I you know everything that you gave, I gave to the game, it gave me back full months because it was a, a phenomenal time for me. Yeah, and it, it's an interesting time for uh, US player development in particular. I know that the, uh, the US Soccer Federation recently closed down its development academies due to financial problems. And I know the MLS clubs have kind of stepped up and taken on 65 of those clubs, but there's a lot needs to happen. What what do you think needs to happen in U.S. soccer to set out better for the future? Well, well, I think also, you know, I'm in the believer that the MLS clubs should be in their own governing body. You know, MLS Academy, call it whatever you like, whether it's uh, U.S. academies, but they should be. And because of the size of the country, that is going to be a problem with how many games that you're going to play. But I think what will happen in the next probably two years is that USL will have academies, maybe not at the levels of like eights and tens and twelves. Uh, it may be just like 14s, 16s and 18s. Mm. But I think USL teams will have some sort of an academy uh, affinity and then you'll have MLS and them joining together. And then like my club, we're in the uh, ECNL leagues, uh, which is an excellent league. The girls has been very successful for, you know, probably five, six, seven years. And three years ago, our club uh, took the chance to go into that. Uh, league and it's been very very beneficial for the boys so you know I'm a believer the the pros should be in their league and then you have obviously maybe kids that are looking for college uh, maybe haven't got a professional team nearby um, you know that's for uh, soccer to be decided in the future but if I was looking at it I think professional teams should have their own bracket and then obviously club teams should be in their own bracket as well. Do you believe that the MLS teams need to affiliate with uh, with smaller clubs across the country? Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong doing that. You know, you ha yeah, mm -hmm. Be again, because of the country so big, you know, where I'm from and by your ex, I can tell where you're, you know, it was easy to get, you know, 50 miles, 60 miles to two or three professional clubs. And because you had 92 at that time, and that's why I'm thinking, well, if MLS merged with USL, you're going to have 60, maybe 75 clubs across the country. So you're going to be a lot closer to, to where you're playing. And even if you use these other ECNL teams or, uh, you know, second tier DA teams to play scrummages games, practice games, but ultimately the, the MLS team should be playing against their their own level, their own, um, you know, whether it's showcases, I, mean, I know it's difficult with the circumstances at the mm -hmm. moment, but definitely should be in an area where, uh, you know, they're um, controlling their own uh, destiny because it, that group of kids are looking to be professionals, as my son did at uh, Seattle Sounders, trying to be a professional. You know, ECNL really is the, the college way, the college avenue going forward. And if you can get a professional player out of that, great. But I think, you know, you do have to make a, a decision at the age of 14, 15. It's where, do, where does it lie? 
Great. Well, we're going to delve into your career a little bit now and talk about that. But before I do, I say that uh, for anyone watching, if you have any questions for Warren, please let us uh, know on the uh, icon below. Uh, just shoot them there and we'll try to get them as much as we can. We've got pretty packed, packed schedule. So, so let's just start, Warren. You talked a little bit about um, your early career and you were actually released by Frank Clark at Leighton Orient when you were 16 because he said you were too small. Is that the same case, what happened with Arsenal and, and Watford as well? Am I right in saying that? Well, no, uh, this is not going to help Arsenal fans <laughs> here. At the age of 13, um, Graham Taylor was being very successful at Watford with Luther Blissett and obviously John Barnes. They got to a cup final and I was asked to go to, to Watford uh, as a schoolboy. And I was there at 12, 11, 12. I had to make that decision whether it was Arsenal or Watford. And uh, the way Watford had looked after me uh, with a guy called Ken Brooks, who was the local scout of that area, uh, was very, very much in my corner, was wanting me to progress to go forward and, and really help me in my career at the beginning at, at such a young age of 11 and 12. So uh, Watford was there and I went there at, as a 12-year-old. I'd been there for about 18 months and then got to 13. And I think boys at 13, 14, all developed different and I was a, a late bloomer uh, although I could still pass and control the ball uh, a guy called Tom Wally uh, was the was the coach there and decided to release me at nearly 14 and I was devastated because I, Arsenal was my team and I turned Arsenal down as a schoolboy yeah. uh, and said that I wanted to go to Watford so at that age at you know 14 15 I'm now looking around and like I just repeated myself I had another professional team late in Orient that was around the corner and Ken Brooks had a good friend at Leighton Orient, one of the scouts and said, look, you know, take Warren. We still think he can play. So from the age of 14 to 16, I, I did the, the YTS scheme. If you remember that many, many years yeah. ago, 27 pound 50 a week plus expenses, which was a fortune for me at that time. Scrubbing um, people's boots for a, Exactly. Yeah. And doing the toilets yeah. and doing the turnstiles and, and everything else, learning my trade. Yeah. Um, and then Frank Clark, unfortunately at the end of the season in the old third division, they didn't make the playoffs uh, and Frank brought me in at 16. And again, I was like five foot one, uh, but could still control and pass the ball. Um, but he turned around and said, um, we're going to have to let you go. Uh, we don't feel that you're uh, that the size physically enough. You can you can handle that uh, again. Devastating. But, you know, I had a good family around me, my brother, my sister, my mum, you know, kept believing in me and kept, you know, saying, and to be honest with you, that's all I knew. I wasn't academic great. I wasn't really into a trade at the time, going to college and, and learning a trade, electrician or builder, construction worker. It's all I knew and all I loved. So I just yeah. persevered. I dropped down to non-league soccer, which was probably the best thing I did because I walked into a change room at 16 and a half, five foot one, blonde hair, skinny little legs, and there was builders, there was policemen. And if we lost a game yeah. for, at the time, a, a bonus was five pounds, they would let you know about it. Um, so it, I learned very, very quickly there and had two very, very good successful years. We, we, we won our division that we was in and got my chance to go to Maidstone uh, to be a professional. Yeah. I could have stayed actually in, in a non-league to a club called Barnet, uh, which had a manager called Barry Fry, who's a very um, charismatic yeah, yeah. guy and, and Stan Flash. Yeah, a Peterborough, yeah. And Stan Flashman at the time was a big ticket agency dealer. Uh, and I was going to get four times as much money to stay in the league. But for me, in deep down, to be given a, a chance to be a professional uh, at Maystone was something that I couldn't turn down. And, you know, lucky enough, it, it worked out for me. Nine months later, uh, I'm in the Premier League with Wimbledon. But it was a real tough time, you know. And 
you know, you you find out a lot about yourself, uh, about how you have to motivate going on cold runs. And mm-hmm. when I was playing non-league, I was actually working in the city for a chartered accountant called Arthur Anderson and driving across a, a motorway uh, on a moped, freezing cold, snowing in, in, in London. So, uh, yeah, I, I've learned the hard way. And that's why I think, and I know people like Stuart Pearce, Ian Wright, Chris Waddle, we yep. appreciate it because it, is, it wasn't given to us. We had to fight for it non-league getting that opportunity. And, and uh, as I said, that's why we, we relish and cherish every moment. Yeah, you mentioned the YTS games and, and obviously that, that's kind of disappeared nowadays and, and you, you see a lot of... Showing my age as well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you see a lot of uh, reports of uh, the younger players that the clubs paid extortionate amounts of money um, and they're not really given... They, they, they're kind of really promoted as, as uh, superstars before they've even uh, kicked the ball. Well, what's your viewpoint on that? Do you, do you feel like the... There needs to be a, a step back away. Do you feel like there needs to be a cap on the amount of money that could be paid? No, I'm not. I don't mind people earning money. I really don't. I think, you know, because of how the business has grown and the Premier League has given me a great job for the last 12 years and, and three years in England when I was working for Sky, BBC and ITV. So the Premier League has, has given me that opportunity. So I've got no bitterness about the money. And if people earn it and respect it and, and, and do the right things. I look at, say, Ronaldo, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, the money that he's got, but he earns it. When you watch him on Instagram, the way he trains, the way he conducts himself, he's earned, he earns every penny uh, that he gets because he sacrificed so much. It's the ones that get it given to him that, you know, would you say maybe, and again, like the college system here with this now, they're going to be paid endorsement money. That should go into a trust maybe at the age of 18, 19. We can all live on a thousand bucks a month yeah. or a week or whatever it may be. Give that to them to be able to have a roof over their head. They normally get a sponsored car from the club, wherever they are. Not always, but we're talking about maybe Premier League players. And the rest can go into a trust, and that's for them to get a 25. Uh, because you know what it's like. Things change. People get injured. So that's something that I would look at. And I, th- I think it's the same with college kids as well, is that why give a 17-year-old $100,000 a week? It's the ch- They're going to waste it. So, you know, if we can have... But again, it's that freedom. It's the agents get involved. They want their cut. They've got a financial advisor. But I do believe there should be some restriction with younger players. But once you make that threshold of 21, then you've got to stand on your own two feet and be responsible to, to do that. But particularly so young when you're you know, 15, 16, 17 years of age and you're playing for Barcelona or like yeah. Wayne Rooney when he broke into the Premier League, you need a bit of guidance. And if you haven't got that support around you, then maybe the union, the PFA or the governing body could help them. You know, not saying they should take money from them, but should guide them in a way and maybe have ex-players or ex-athletes that have been through that experience to to guide them. You know, not wanting a cut, not wanting any money from them, but to try and help them. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. So um, you talked about moving to Wimbledon. Uh, Obviously, you moved to Wimbledon, you made that right back slot you're on. But you actually had some of your best games in, in midfield for uh, for Wimbledon, uh, if I'm, I have to say that. Uh, so what do you feel is your most comfortable position, but also where do you feel like you contributed the most to the team? Yeah, I, I think at that time, so you're going way, way back to the, you know, the 90s, late 80s, 90s. And, um, you know, fullbacks was normally defend, give it to the wide player. But I was an athlete. I could get up and down. I could, we could run. That's one thing with Wimbledon, you know the likes of John Scales, Terry Phelan, Keith Curl, we could all run uh, yeah. and playing at the back. Um, so at the time, Ray Hartford forwarded me of playing a little bit further forward so I could use my athleticism to get forward to go 
and have that defensive player behind me, a guy called Roger Joseph, that we could do that. And we could interchange. If he went forward, I'm comfortable slotting in there. As the game evolved in the mid-90s, I, I felt the fullbacks was expected to go forward. You know, me, Graham Lasso, them type of players. Cafu's at a different level for me, but he was that type of fullback that we, my idea when I played against Giggs or Harry Kuehl or Omri, can you can you defend? I'm going to run you that way rather than stand there and let you keep coming at me. My my principles was going to try and push you back, um, and that's where I felt I was more comfortable because as the game evolved, and now you look at fullbacks, particularly with Pep, he wants them to play up, and you look at Trent Alexander at Liverpool, and yeah. they're they're further forward. So uh, as I said, when I first started the career, it was like defend, stay there, don't move, back four give it to someone else and you've just done the job where my game was a lot more about getting forward, trying to express myself. So that's where I, I did. And, you know, whether it was Joe Kinnear that took over uh, from Peter with that I probably had my better two years. And that's where ultimately I got my move to, to Newcastle was in that midfield area because I could get forward. I could express myself. Um, but also where we played sometimes as a fullback, he still wanted me to get forward. He would say to me, like, I want to see how many crosses you get in a game. Yeah. So, yeah, there was a lot of characters at that time during uh, your, your <laughs> stay in Wimbledon. Just uh, a bit. Fashionu, Vinnie Jones, Dean Holdsworth in, in particular. As a result, you, you probably had a lot of hijinks that happened to you during your time. There's an incident involving British fashion designer uh, Elizabeth Emanuel. Do you yes. remember that incident? Yeah, very much so. She's obviously uh, the main name, a successful designer anyway, but doing Lady Diana's. Yeah. dressed and, and they lived at Wimbledon and she was a big big fan of coming to the games I'm not sure whether she was a big fan of Wimbledon but she loved coming to the games so we asked her to, to come down or sorry should I say the owner of the football club asked her to come down and obviously it was a big press day and at the time lucky for me I'd just been selected in the England setup and for a Wimbledon player it was quite unusual for them to be uh, selected in a, uh, an England pool with Terry Venables and uh, Graham Taylor as well with the, the coaches before so lo and behold to me, you know, there's a big area that we go and train on. She's watching, the cameras are everywhere, uh, taking pictures. Um, Joe comes out as the coach, says, you know, we want a, a bit of good news. We've got celebrities here, but obviously, you know, one of our own players has been selected. So the Wimbledon spirit being how it, how it was, uh, they decided to strip me, uh, drag me through a puddle from the length of the field because it had been raining, obviously, in, in the UK. Uh, and I'm then now standing five feet away from a designer that's just done arguably one of the most famous wedding dress in the world with no clothes on. Yeah. Uh, that's being how I am. I grab a police cone, which was actually a bigger one. I put that over my myself, walk past and say good morning and walk straight into the, the locker room. And again, it got a lot of publicity. And, uh, you know, it was a very embarrassing moment for me because it was a cold February afternoon. So I put the cone on, walked straight past her, uh, said good morning. And that was the end of my uh, celebrity uh, outfit from uh, a world famous designer. So that, that was just one of many that we would do. And whether it was John Hartson when he first signed as a designer, as a, as a player, uh, they got his designer suit that he went on his press conference yeah. and just set that on fire. Uh, that same day, actually, that I got stripped and uh, dragged for a puddle in front of uh, a famous world designer is that my car tyres got slashed. And you would, you would think it was by one of the players or, you know, maybe one of the coaching staff. It was actually by Sam, the owner. Yeah. Sam's yeah. did it. So that was part of his keep your feet on the ground. We're proud of you. You've done well, but you're not going to be a big time, Charlie. Yeah, Sam Haman, the, the eccentric owner of Wimbledon at the time. Uh, so speaking of England, you made your debut 
um, in the infamous Lansdowne Road riot game against the uh, Republic of Ireland in uh, February of 95. The game was only 27 minutes long, but the tension was kind of building for quite a long time before that. Did, were you aware as a player about what was happening away from the pitch? And were you, did that kind of fill you a little bit with uh, nervousness going onto the pitch? I was nervous anyway, being making my debut. And that, yeah. I, I always thought that was a good sign. But there was a lot of, um, because obviously we'd had a couple of days in Ireland training, preparing, we we see it as a group of players, and even the Irish lads, because Terry Feedham was there, one of my old Wimbledon colleagues, as a stepping stone to to make us together, to make it now more calm, to make the situation more fluid, where we we can be friends, we can go to watch games, we can you know compete against each other, but obviously you know still have that respect and uh, code of conduct as players. Um, but going into the stadium, you did sense there was a lot of booing. There was a, a, a really toxic atmosphere. You looked where the English fans were. There wasn't normally what you would expect stuck in a corner somewhere. They was arguably in the main stand. They'd got tickets from, from somewhere uh, and somehow to be able to do that. So even at the warm-up time, you know, I remember saying to Peter Beersley, you know, this is some atmosphere here. And he said, yeah, it's a, it's a bit hot. So, you know, it's that type of intensity which we thought maybe you know it's a big game two nations know each other really well jack charlton obviously terry venable so there was lots and lots of contacts there um and mutual respect from everybody um but then it didn't take too long to realize that when we had the national anthem the, the booing started then you started hearing certain chants and then as a player the whistle goes and you get into the game uh, but it was just a noise of, of booing and cheering and screaming and, and going on and that was when yeah, the game was going and all of a sudden I took a throw in and you could hear certain chants and you just take them split seconds that come into your mind about what's going on. Um, they they then go on and score. Kelly goes through and scores and they were mm -hmm. arguably the better team at that time. We we really couldn't get into our, into our game, England. We was trying to pass it out. They was closing us down. They was very much about pressing and being a physical team. We couldn't really get into it. It was really windy uh, as well. The goal goes in. And then all hell breaks loose, you know. Mm. <clears throat> and the thing that concerned me first and foremost is that I knew my family was underneath that tier because that's where the corporate England tickets was. And I'd had my mum, dad, um, my fiance at the time, that now my wife, brother, they was all there. Um, mm. So it was a real concern about that. Not necessarily about my safety because I didn't. Yeah. That wasn't my first fault. One, it was like, what the, what the hell is going on? Because it's you know we've we'd had conversations about. Euro 96, hooligans, how can we control it? Don't antagonize the crowd, all these type of things that we'd had different seminars while we was with the England setup. Um, but then this had broken out and, you know, first of all, we stopped and just stood and then the referee made the correct decision to get us off the field. Um, but then it just went, you know, into, into absolute chaos and things being thrown. And you know, first of all, it's huge disappointment for me. Um, mm. But also disappointment for my country because mm. I, I'm proud to, you know, represent my country as anybody would do. And I just felt let down. I just felt it wasn't my fault. I'd gone out there. We tried to shake hands and, and make this a, a goodwill gesture. Um, and something like that you know, uh, just totally ruins uh, the occasion. Um, and it's not every English fan. Uh, and it wasn't every Irish fan either. So I want to make that clear. But it's something that you know will always be in the history books. And, and unfortunately, I'm going to be part of that, making my Indian debut. Yeah. And it never really got over it because, you know, again, the, 
the atmosphere that was there and it still gets brought up now and um it's something that you know i'm ashamed of of being involved with because you know the english fans let let everybody down let the country down and that's not been the case in certain tournaments yes we you know we are target but the fans when they do go you know go in charts and, and represent the country as, as every fan does the brazilians are the same the, the, the Americans, when they go to game, they World Cups, the, the, the Americans are everywhere, whatever game they can go and watch. But that, nothing like that. You know, the, the, the national anthem stuck out for me because that's when you could feel the, the, the toxic atmosphere. Yeah. So um, I was kind of surprised to read you only had two other caps after that. Uh, especially so was I. Based on your performances <laughs> for Newcastle and, and so was before I. that. Why do you uh, why do you think that was and, and were you disappointed obviously not to win more caps? Uh, yes, yeah, of course I was. You know, um, I, I felt like throughout my career, you know, I'd had you know obviously was top of the league. I finished second twice, mm. but I think people you know remember at that time Lee Dixon was a, an outstanding player. Gary Neville was coming through. Uh, Earl Barrett was playing. There was Glenn Johnson was just breaking through. Mika Richards. So, you know, there was uh, Richard Edgehill was broken into the England under twenty one. So there was a you know, in a in the Premier League at that time, there was probably seven English right backs playing. You know, now I counted the other day, there was like two or three. Yeah. You know, if you count Carl Walker who's playing now. So at that time there was seven seven or eight, you know, players, right backs at that time that was playing. David Beersley who's now out in uh, Florida, he was playing at Queen's Park Rangers and they was doing really well with Les Ferdinand and, and Ray Wilkins at that team. So there was lots of uh, competition for place. Um but I felt that, you know, I'd, I'd done reasonably well in the games that I played uh, in the Premier League. You know, I was consistently playing. Um, Terry Venables for the Euro 96 was a, a genius as well as a coach because if you if, now we've been able to watch the games, he, he went three at the back in certain games against the Dutch and against the Spaniards. So he, he changed things around with McManaman and Darren Anderson and had Pierce and uh, Southgate and, and Tony Adams in there. So he, he was changing it around and then obviously Glenn come in to the uh, occasion afterwards Glenn Hoddle wasn't a big Wimbledon fan so I don't know whether that was against me but and then Gary Gary and David Beckham was two piece from a pod you know they were outstanding players complimenting each other very very well it's a new era breaking in I got called in a couple of times afterwards on standby and, and was asked to go in with Kevin Keegan as well but you know maybe my time had gone but yeah I, I felt I deserved another chance because the chances I really got was a game that got abandoned after 27 minutes. Yeah. Um, and then it was an Umbro tournament, one at Ellen Road, and then a, a short time at, at, um, at Wembley against Brazil. But hey, listen, that's life. I'm not going to... If you said to me at 13 when Tom Wally said, you're too small, you're not going to make it, and sit here saying, well, you've only got three England caps, you know what I mean? I, I wouldn't be too disappointed. There's a lot of great players who who you feel like they should have won a lot more caps, but it's just timing and circumstance. Kind of and, and also, yeah, and it's people's opinion. And, and as, yeah. as I rightly said, Gary was an outstanding player and he had, you know, Glenn Johnson was coming in and there was other players that was going on. So, listen, Gary's got the most caps for uh, a right back at, at the time. So, great credit to him. And as I said, he, he was, him and David was very, very close. Yeah, so so go, going back to Wimbledon, your last season, uh, Hans Segers and John Fashner got caught up in a match-fixing scandal that uh, with Bruce Grobar. Um, how much were you aware of it at the time, and, and how much did it affect the squad, or, or how did the squad react to the news breaking? I, I wasn't aware of it, actually. I wasn't. There was games that we went in, and I wasn't really aware of Hans or John doing anything suspicious in, in that respect. And there was no... 
time that you actually felt, oh, you know, what's going on here? Why has John not done this or whatever? There was nothing like that. It was afterwards when we all got investigated, actually, we got pulled aside and we got questioned. And it was a big, big surprise for, mm -hmm. for all of us. Um, and obviously longer the case went on and the situation, it's like anything. No, no one wants to, likes cheats and people to throw games. That, that's a, a law of sportsmen. I think that's how we all are as people. We don't want to see people get the better of games just purely by betting and cheating. So, you know, if it did happen, um, then, you know, it's not fair to the rest of us because we worked so hard. It wasn't fair to the fans. It wasn't fair to the opposition who we're playing against. So, you know, it was a real uh, surreal time, actually, because people getting investigated for fixing games. I've never heard of anything like that, you know, particularly in the Premier League. You know, you've maybe you'd heard of certain things in Italy or in Thailand. There's been certain allegations, Singapore, but but not in the Premier League. So it was a real un unusual time. And, you know, they denied it. Um, and I don't think anyone's ever questioned them either. But it's um, it was something that would feel bad in our taste in our mouth because, as I said, we worked so hard. We didn't have the talent like other clubs did. So Wimbledon, we had to work hard and, and make sure that we, we give everything for the calls. And if you feel that someone or two of them are, are not doing it. Yeah. Yeah, so, so uh, after five years at Wimbledon, you moved to, to Newcastle uh, after Kevin Keegan convinced you to, to move uh, based on the club's ambitions. But you uh, apparently you turned down or you, there was interest from the likes of Blackburn, who just won the title under Kenny Dalglish, uh, Celtic in Scotland, and, and obviously your, your boyhood club, Arsenal, expressed a bit of an interest. Why did you favour the move to Newcastle rather than going to, to one of the other options? Uh, I'll tell you a quick story with Blackburn as well. It was about, it was about February time uh, when they was obviously trying to um, win the title. Eventually, they did go and win the title. I got a phone call from my agent, me and Robbie Earl, actually. We, I was around Robbie's house watching a game. I was watching the Man United game and said, get in the car. Uh, Kenny wants to see you. You're going to sign for Blackburn. For, at the time, I think it was for about £4 million pounds, uh, at, at the time for both of us. So we was all excited. Then 45 minutes later, I got the phone call. No, it's off. So that's how you know, quick it can change. Uh, and then at the time, even the likes of Man City, um, we'd had um, Everton that had been in, involved uh, as well. Uh, Celtic, I'd actually spoken to them as well about going north of the border. Um, they was a bit reluctant to spend the money. Uh, spoke to David Dean at Arsenal, went to see Arsenal youth against Wimbledon in a semi-final game in 95. Uh, and he I was in a director's box. And Highbury at the time was like the, the, the sanctuary for me. It was the, the marble floor, the, all the yeah. history that had gone with it. And Arsenal was my team, my brother, family, sister. You know, the, we was all big Arsenal fans, uh, as well as my dad. But something with Kevin Keegan and Newcastle, that it was exciting, um, the team that they was building. And also, I'd been in the England setup with, you know, likes of Rob Lee, Probably, uh, Peter yeah. Beersley, but also Barry Venison. And, and right. for anyone that knows Barry Venison, he's a, a lovely, lovely man. And he, I, in theory, was coming to take his place. And he said to me, you've got to get to Newcastle, the, the fans... Uh, the city, what Kevin's trying to achieve, you know, to win trophies. So I'd done my groundwork at Wimbledon, and now it's about winning things and, and trying to compete. Arsenal at the time didn't have a manager. Uh, Arsene Wenger didn't come for a few months later. And David was trying to, David Dean was trying to say to me and Les, actually, just wait, just just wait and, and go forward. But, you know, the, the money was on the table for Wimbledon. Met Kevin Keegan on a bank holiday Monday in, in April in, in London, and it, it was a no-brainer. But a few months as well, Wimbledon had played Newcastle, and I was on the field with me and Robbie 
was doing a call down. And I, when we uh, when we lost the game and Newcastle won it, so the, the fans were still around. And I said to Robbie, imagine playing with this lot. Imagine playing in this stadium uh, with these fans and these people. It'd be a bit surreal. Lo and behold, you know, four months later, um, they're coming in for me. So it just seemed to be all the right direction. Kevin was there. So John Hall was spending money. They was going for Les Ferdinand. David Ginola was coming. Shaka Hislop, Tina Espria. It, it just seemed the right time. And I've got no regrets. As much as I'm an Arsenal fan, and I would yeah. love to have gone to Celtic and played for them fans because they're, they're, they're crazy and, you know, um, played in one of the old firms. Newcastle, for me, was just the, the, the right the right time. And Keegan, uh, Keegan built that team known as the Entertainers because they were very focused on going forward and attacking, uh, buying attacking players, like you mentioned, like Janola and Spria, uh, rather than kind of focusing on the defence. But he saw you and, and John Beresford on the other side as being crucial components of that, um, that team that he was building because he wanted to, to have that extra dimension of you guys attacking and being wingbacks. Uh, did, did Keegan sell you on that early on and the idea behind that? And did he did you focus much on defensive training um, in preparation for games or, or not really? Was it mostly focused on the attacks? <laughs> no and no. He, he didn't sell me on the set concept. He just said, look, I want you to play. I love the way you play. You can link in well. We want you to go forward. We want you to express yourself. So that was his selling point. It wasn't tactics about, you know, maybe when Keith Gillespie tucks in, I want you to go on the outside. Mm -hmm. It was just, I love the way you play, the enthusiasm you've got. Um, you know, you, I can see you being a future captain. You're going to get more England caps. All, all these type of things that, that we, we spoke about. And then obviously, you know, going onto the field and wanting us to go forward. And I remember saying to Kevin after about five or six games, I, I said, you know, boss, I, I don't feel like I'm contributing enough. He said, you're doing your job. That's fine. You've got this. You've got that. Just go out there and play. Um, we brought Mark Lawrenson in to, as, a, as a defensive coach. And, you know, with all due respect, he, he didn't have an idea. He didn't really give us any uh, foundation to defend. Um, we was about, you know, sometimes Kevin's team talks, and he did it with Wimbledon. He just said, uh, when we play, we end up beating Wimbledon 6-1. Uh, he looked at their team and said, repped it up. He went, I've got the one that I want. Go and play them. Go and beat them. And we end up winning, you know. Video ends up going in goal, and we we end up winning uh, six one against Wimbledon, and and that's how he was, you know. And maybe in hindsight, I always look at the Man United game, and maybe when we went away, sometimes we could have been a bit more uh, conservative in yeah. la in latter games, um, and maybe that would have been enough to see us through. But it wasn't in our DNA. All the players, Philip Albert, you remember the memorable goal when he chips yeah. Peter Schmeichel? That was our centre half on the eighteen yard box, yeah. and you know that's how we played and. Um, it was a joy to be around. I've gone from a crazy gang to an entertainer. So it was quite surreal from that point of view. And we, we was allowed to go and express ourselves. And anyone that was around that time, the fans wanted us to do that. They would have hated to see us draw nil. You know, I remember beating Bradford and Watford 1-0. We got booed off the field. So, you know, it's that type of expectation that the, the, the fans wanted. And Newcastle at that time was really vibrant. The city was vibrant, the, you know, the nightlife, the buildings that was being built. It was a real fun time to be around. And, and, and again, Newcastle players was a big part of that. Um, Kenny come along the second season and made us a bit more defensive minded and got us to a cup final. Uh, mm -hmm. We played against Arsenal, was, was going for the double. And we ended up being in the Champions League. So that's where, you know, hindsight was a great thing. If we could have maybe done the last eight games of grinding out results, 
who knows, we might have been sitting there and there's not a day go by that I don't think about if maybe what could have been just to have ultimately won that, won that trophy. Yeah, the, that two second place finishes and the two cup finals, it, it, it just seems to be that there was a, um, just so close to, to getting those trophies in the, in the door, but just being pipped at the last kind of hurdle, they must have hurt a lot to, to kind of, to kind of keep going through that, that piece and, and not, not pick up that trophy at the end of the day. Yeah, the, the first one was, was devastating. Being 12 points clear, they had a game in hand, so nine, nine points, whatever it was. But, you know, their record, the last 15 games, was phenomenal, Man United. And anyone else, we would have been okay. I think at that time, we would have gone through, but Sir Alex started the mind games, Kevin Keegan, you know, that, the famous outburst where we... And it sort of took us a bit of time. But to get over that, so John Hall said, you know what, we're going to go and get Alan Shearer. So break a world record, Alan comes in. Now we think, okay, we're back in business. We got, because we, it was a hard, hard summer for us. You know, we, we, none of us had really won a trophy before, whether it was Les, David, only Peter Beersley, obviously he, he, he'd won trophies, but we'd never really had that winning mentality. Bringing Alan in, we think, okay, that, that's, now we could maybe go and do well. And unfortunately, the turn of the year, Kevin walks away. He walks out of the club mm. because it, it's starting to change. But we still managed to, you know, with the quality that we had, the players that we had, still finished second. Um, and I always remember the last game of the season in that in that time when we beat uh, Nottingham Forest 5-0, uh, which made us able to get in the Champions League and it, it sent Middlesbrough and Sunderland to relegation. So that that was quite nice for us. It was a good weekend for the Newcastle fans, that one. Yeah. So, so we you did talk about that run in uh, in that that first season when when you kind of dropped the twelve points to Manchester United. I was looking at the some of the games in there, and uh, you lost a lot a late goal against uh, West. So. Uh, you were going you were beaten by West Ham away, and then you lost a, a goal in the game against uh, Man City and Liverpool, and then Blackburn. Was there a concentration? level drop towards the end of that or was it purely nerves that kind of kicked in i think it was a mixture of both uh, I, I, th I do i think we got caught up and just thinking that you get two we get three and mm -hmm. and then the opposition who you're playing against they get wiser to how you're playing so then they exploit the areas that you leave you know stan collimore the famous guy where he gets on on that right hand side where you know, we're, yeah. we're isolated and got caught out of position. The 4-3 um, game. game. Probably arguably one of the best games ever in the Premier League. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think it was a call of, well, if we, just the momentum. And we, momentum's such a big thing in school. It's such a huge thing. And we lost momentum. And the, the harder we tried and the more we was trying to get there, the harder it was. And it just seems like sand slipping through your fingers because, you know, we got there. Then I think Tino got sent off against Man City. Or, and then there was... Mm instances going and United were kept chipping away, chipping away. Fergie kept saying his bit and then it just, what we needed to do again, and I did it once with uh, Les and Peter Beersley, is sit down and say, look, we need to just get together as a group of players and it just wasn't Kevin's way. It just really wasn't Kevin's yeah. way to do it, you know, it's, and I'm, who am I to say to Kevin that we need to just sit together, even if I'm playing or not playing, because a couple, towards the end, I've got dropped from a couple of games, uh, two or three of us did. And because he was just cut, trying to get some momentum back, you know, Tino come in, Keith got left out, you know, we started shuffling the pack, Rob went from centre midfield out right, so it was a real just trying to get some momentum. We, we won the game at Ellen Road and we'd get some results, 
But by that time, the Man United game killed us when they got the, the Cantona goal in the last 11 minutes. Um, that, that took the stuffing out and we could never really... It's like being caught by a right hook for Mike Tyson. We, we couldn't get back from it. We couldn't get back from it. Yeah, and Keegan actually said in uh, 2018 that um, if you guys had won the title that year and you managed to keep the squad together, you would have had the momentum to kind of go on and win multiple trophies, both domestically and in Europe. Do you believe that's the case? or? Yeah, no, I do. I, I th winning is a mentality and winning is a habit. Um, and we'd all gone there to win. We'd all gone there to win for Kevin. Uh, but ultimately, we'd gone there for the fans, to win for the fans. And because we've had our day, it was great. And it's all, as I said, it's every day I think about it. It's not necessarily for me. It's for the fans and the people in the football club that, you know, work day in, day out. To have that as part of their history would have been, you know, something special for them. Um, but, yeah, you do. You look at what Chelsea did. Look what Man City did. You know, they go and win at the, the League Cup. They go and win at the FA Cup. And then that belief comes, then you attract other players. And, you know, that's where we've come short, as you rightly said, you know, finishing second twice mm -hmm. and then the FA Cup. You look at circumstances, you know, in the FA Cup, a team that's going for the double, arguably one of the best team of that, that decade, when you look at what Arsene Wenger had built. And the other team, the next team, Man United, went and won the treble. Probably the best team uh, in the Premier League era uh, at that time to go and win the treble. Um, so there's a winning mentality, you know, to do what they did in, in the Champions League. That's a winning mentality to come back and, and score goals. And we, we couldn't, uh, we tried to buy it. We, tried, we couldn't do anything to try and get it. But I definitely agree with Kevin. If we got one, we definitely would have been challenging for more uh, for yeah. out. There's no doubt. So, so that team, uh, that team that you played in had a lot of, technically brilliant players like you look at Ginola, Espria, uh, John Barnes, uh, Peter Beardsley, etc. Like who from your point of view was the, the most technically gifted player and, and how important were they to the, the team? David was the most technically gifted player I've, I've played. Gascoigne would be my, Gascoigne, I was yeah. Gonna, yeah, Gaza would be the one that I would pick out but uh, playing week in where David would do things I've never seen before. Uh, my favourite player was Peter Beersley because the way he he trained, the way he played, uh, the way he was uh, was outstanding. You know, he was a, a role model, not necessarily verbally like a, a Tony Adams or a Stuart Pearce, but by his his his, his movement and by his attitude, um, he he was one. But David was 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 gifted, left foot, right foot, strong, quick, great balance. Um, you know, there was a game, me and Rob Lee, we played in midfield against Hearts. It was only pre-season friendly. He terrorised them. He was out of this world. I mean, even the, the Hearts fans were standing out clapping him. He was that good. And the game that he did against Gary Neville, it, that, you know, Gary, Lee Dixon, Glenn, these players, David terrorised them. You know, not necessarily just with pure pace like Keith Gillespie or Gareth Fowle. He would shape him up and they tried to kick it. They tried to do whatever they could. They couldn't get near him. He, he was, it, it, you know, it was his footwork, wasn't it? It was just the His balance. His, his balance. balance for yeah. someone so big, you know, he was 6'1", 6'2", and he was, a, you know, probably about 13 and a half stone. But he could yeah. shrug him off and change direction. Uh, you know, Omri was another one that was strong and quick uh, from that point of view. Tino, you didn't know what was going to go on. And I don't think he really knew, but what a player he was at home. Don't play mm -hmm. away from home play him at home um, and a great character as well. So, yeah, as I said, very, very fortunate to play with talented players. So there's a lot of rumours about the potential takeover by the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund and, and the promise of exciting names coming to Newcastle. What do you feel about that takeover and, and uh, the, the, the potential opportunity of these players arriving at uh, St. James's? 
Yeah, I, I also as well, I don't think it's just in the North East or in the Premier League. I think globally, it's everybody's got interest because the money that possibly could be available for a, a, a soccer club, a football club is, you know, you've seen what's happened at PSG, Manchester City, Chelsea a few, you know, a decade ago with their money. But this is a totally different level and the players and the expectation of, of what they want to try and bring in is, is exciting, very similar to what happened you know, when you buy Les Ferdinand for six million now, that wouldn't get someone's little toe. So, you know, to have that money spent for Les and then David, myself, Tino, um, but the players that are being linked, whether it's a Gareth Bell, you know, just to come for a couple of years, Griezmann's being linked, you know, I would like Timo Werner, Akimi, you know, Cavani, you know, these are world-class players uh, that are, are looking to come. And also if you throw maybe Pochettino as their head coach yeah. as well, really, really exciting times. Uh, and it's, you know, as, as an ex-player and as a fan, it's got you really excited about the possibility of what might happen. Um, there's still paperwork to be done. And, and because of the, the last 13 years we've had under Mike Ashley, it's mm. the uncertainty, the disappointment, the promise. It's, it's that type of feeling. And maybe because of the environment that we're in at the moment, we're locked indoors. Everybody's looking at their social media for a, a story to break and news to come along. Um, it, that's why a, a word is patience at the moment for Newcastle fans, but it's hard because of the circumstances. But if and when this this, this takeover goes along, uh, it could make Newcastle back where they belong. And that's challenging, not just about surviving, not just about holding out from relegation. It's about challenging, as, as you rightly said earlier on, about mm -hmm. challenging for trophies and trying to win that, that elusive trophy for the fans. So, so that's great. I'm just cautious of time, uh, Warren. So I'm just gonna, I've got a couple extra questions, and then, and then we can wrap this up. So, uh, you left Newcastle in February of 2002, and you joined Derby, Derby, and then uh, six days later, Rob Lee joined you down there as well. Uh, that was quite a squad that they had with Kincladze, Ravanelli, yourself, uh, Lee, uh, Craig Burley, Malcolm Christie. Yet you kind of seemed to struggle to to kind of compete in the in the division. What was, the, what was the reason behind that? Do you think that the squad mix wasn't potentially correct? No, I'd be, I'd be honest. And when we first went there, when we actually got relegated, the, I think the 10 games, we had nine games against the top teams, you know, the likes of Arsenal, Chelsea, Man United, all them type of teams. And there, there, it'd been a, a losing mentality then to a winning mentality. We had a bit of a kickstart with uh, John Gregory uh, coming in, myself, Rob Lee, um, so, but unfortunately, we got relegated at Anfield. Um, and then that summer, which was, you learn good things and bad things. You know, so Bobby Robson's was my, my ultimate coach. And I had Rude Hullett, Kevin Keegan, mm -hmm. Kenny Dalglish, and, it, you know, John Gregory. But John had said to Ravenelli, Craig Burley, Carbonari, I don't want to see you back here again. Because the club had gone into virtually into administration. They couldn't afford to buy anybody uh, right. with him being in the Premier League. So financially, it was difficult. But he sent to them players, I don't want you to find yourself a club. Well, with all due respect, they wasn't going to find a club. They was on, you know, really good money. They latter in their career. People wasn't looking to do that. Leicester did the opposite to what we did. Leicester said to uh, Matty Elliott, Taggart, we're going to keep you. We're going to bounce back. We're going to be okay. Well, they had some young players. We might have to sell one player, two players, like we did with Chris Riggett, Malcolm Christie, just to try and get some money back in. But that call would have been good enough to get us back up there. As soon as John did that, it split the camp. And as much as we would want to go over, me and Rob was, you know, experienced player. We'd known Craig, we'd known Ravenelli, we'd played against them for years and years and years. Brian O'Neill was another one. He's like, 
Gaffer, we need to have these players. If you have them six or seven in the championship, we'll get back up. But he, he wasn't. We've got to get them out. And then it just snowballed. And then, unfortunately, for, for John, uh, about spring the following year, he got the sack. And then, you know, um, George Burley comes in, gets you know, players back in. Yeah, yeah, George had come back in, got some belief back into the players. By that time, my contract was up. Rob's was up. Uh, Craig's was up. We was all going out anyway. So... Um, so you learn from everybody. So I think from John, I said, just keep them with us. You know, I know you don't maybe want them or whatever it may be, but that would have been enough to compete and challenge. And I still think with Ravenelli in that division, with Craig, with Rob Lee, with Brian O'Neill, with me, Carboner, Pumi went, he, he left the goalkeeper, but we had a decent goalkeeper that could come in. We, we would have been okay in that division. But, you know, again, hindsight is a great thing. But we'd, it, was a, it was a shame because it's a great football club, great people. Yeah, um, and again, it was it's, it's it's difficult time to get back out of that division. Yeah, so, so after after um, leaving Derby, you went to QPR, and then you ended up back at Wimbledon. But it was it was very much a different Wimbledon than you left the nine years previously. Stuck in administration, battling relegation, uh, moving to a new stadium. They, they eventually would change names to MK Dons. Uh, looking back now, do you think that was the right move for you at the time, or? Was there a bit of a sentimentality attached to that? Uh, the reason I went back was for Stuart Murdoch, the coach. Um, in Holloway, I was at QPR, and uh, the way Ollie was playing, it, it didn't really suit me. It was about getting it forward, playing 100 miles an hour. It wasn't for me, and I was 35 years of age. Dude, I said, Ollie, I'm 35. I can't. <laughs> you asked me to do things I can't do. So that that was a good, you know, again, a learning curve to go, go to QPR, another good football club uh, as well. And I remember speaking to Stuart on the phone and I've seen him in an interview. That's right. I watched him on an interview and he looked a beta man. And I said to Stu, I phoned him up. I said, look, I'll come down. I was in the middle of doing my pro license and coaching license. I said, look, don't worry. I want to come down. He said, we can't give you any money. Legally, they have to give you 90 pound a week. So I said, you know, don't worry about that. I I come down there because there was people that was washing the kit, people in the canteens, the coaching staff in the academy that I'd still knew that was there. It was, wasn't about going to MK Dons. I couldn't care less about that. that. That was nothing to do with it. It was about the people that was there when I was there to go back for them three months to just try and take a bit of pressure off. Just to say to Stu, look, mm. you, if you have to deal with the offices and the administrator, I'll help coaching. I'll be out there. I'll make sure the lads warm up properly because there was no money. There was nothing there. There were some good young players. The academy had always been good at Wimbledon. But it was being ripped apart. The club was being ripped apart from, from one area to another. Uh, so really, for it was costing me money uh, in petrol mm. to, go to, to, go, to go to work. But it was really for Stuart Murdoch and the people that I'd known in the offices that you know, was big Wimbledon fan. And I love seeing it now with AFC Wimbledon going back to Plough Lane. Because that's yeah. the Wimbledon I know. Not MK Dons. That's fine. That's another franchise, another team. But my team is AFC Wimbledon. And you know, to have Stuart just to try and help him out. All right, it didn't pan out. We got relegated, but it was it, just to have. I don't experience, and just to say to them, look, you know, we can get through. Have a cup of coffee after a game. We'll have a chat. Just have someone to bounce ideas off. You know, anything we would try and do because for him, it was his livelihood. He was actually coaching and trying to get another job going because he didn't have any money. They didn't. They couldn't. They couldn't pay him. But he still wanted to be there and, and try and help the lads out that was there. And you know, that's why I did it. That's why I did it. It wasn't. You know, people think, well, you went there for MK. I didn't go to MK Dons. It was, it was for mm. Stuart. Uh, and I know that. And people in the game know that. 
Yeah, and and what do you what did you feel when you saw the name change to MK Dons? With you, I didn't feel anything really because, as I said, Wimbledon to me was always the Wimbledon club. It's always Wimbledon. MK Dons is great. The way I looked at it is that two football clubs survived. Wimbledon went down and they've come back up, and it was great that they played each other and took MK Dons over. But it's great because MK Dons is is a good football club. It's got a good owner, great stadium, good people. It's got someone another an opportunity in the football league. So yeah, I don't have any qualms against MK Dons either. And just finally, a couple of uh, fan questions. So um, one was, who is the best? Who is the best right wing back in the world right now? In your your opinion? Uh, I know he didn't show it the other day, but the the kid Akimi at Dortmund. He, if you're talking about wing backs, not necessarily a full back. Um, yeah. I would say Akimi would be one that can play that position. He's on loan from Real Madrid. There's a player that if I was Newcastle, I'd go and get him because he's got a clause in his contract that he can leave for, I think it's about 20 million euros. So there's a player I'd be looking at. I think Trent Alexander could be the one mm. as well at Liverpool. I think I know they do play as a, as a four, but he virtually plays in that position as well. Um, so they're two that jump to mind straight, straight away. And then uh, you played with some great strikers over the years, uh, Ferdinand, Fashina, Shearer, to, to name a few. Who's, who, in your opinion, is the most complete striker? Oh, oh, complete. Omri would be the most complete, I think. Uh, Robbie Fowler is the best finisher. Uh, yeah. I think natural finisher. I was lucky enough to be with Ian Rush, but it was towards the tail end of his career. But Robbie, the best striker, number nine, is, is, is Alan. Although Les Ferdinand had more repertoire to his level like he was a better header mm -hmm. he was quicker uh, but alan in front yeah. yeah in powerful yeah alan in front of goal was 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 an animal he just scored goals even in training if you you didn't cross it properly he would tell you straight away so yeah. um if you want a number nine to score goals um i'm showing my age as well van baston would be up there but alan yeah. for me as a number nine leading the line, he, he was phenomenal. Uh, and there's no, no one's ever going to break that record, the, the 260 goals. But Henri was a, was a different class in the sense of what he could, he could do and the, his movement and everything else. And, and the last question is, is one that we, we kind of touched on at the very beginning of, of the piece. Uh, thoughts about the leagues restarting um, after, the after the pandemic. Germany, Italy, and Spain, and England are obviously going ahead, but France, Belgium, Holland have not. Where do you kind of sit on that piece? I think I would want to try and finish the season. As a player and as a coach, I would want to try and finish the season. Germany have showed the way of how to the testing, the, you know, the, uh, being as a, a group of players, how they've managed the games. Um, so I, I look at what the Germans have done, and obviously great for the Premier League to come back. Um, I think France and, and Holland maybe was a very, very quick to, to make that decision. Um, you know, I, I think hindsight it seems to be the word at the moment, maybe yeah. would have been a, a little bit wiser. But when you're talking about people's lives, you, you can't take a chance uh, in the respect. But in the, in the cases of what we've seen with Troy Dealey now, he's happy to go back in his circumstances, having a five-year-old kid, uh, shows you that he's been reassured about how safe it's going to be, how they're going to be testing, what they can do. So. I'm delighted to have uh, the Premier League back. The Bundesliga has showed its way of how it's done it. Fox even with their idea of putting some sound in as well. I think that's yeah. gives someone the food for thought. I love hearing the noises. I love hearing the coaches talk and the, the, the communication from the players. But Fox have done that. So I'm delighted that the leagues are back. 
the Liga, and it's particularly some a nation like Spain that have had it so bad in Italy, uh, yeah. they feel it's safe to to come back and, and go out and play. I know, if I was a player, I would want to be out there playing. Yeah. Okay, Warren, uh, we're almost out of time, so I just wanted to say thank you very much for taking part in this uh, interview, and uh, all the best for the rest of the year and, and with your coaching, and uh, stay safe. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Stay safe, my friend. Good luck. Thanks very much. Thank you very no much problem. for everyone for watching.